How's it going, everybody, and welcome to The Candid Clarinetist, the podcast where we explore the lives on and off the stage of professional clarinetists, musicians, teachers, and leaders of the orchestra industry. My name is Sam Rothstein, assistant principal clarinetist and bass clarinetist of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra and the host of The Candid Clarinetist. Today's guest is a dear friend of mine, and I'm excited to welcome him to this week's episode. He is currently principal clarinetist of the Fort Wayne Philharmonic in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Him and I first met at an audition back in 2011, and when I moved to Indianapolis, I knew I wanted to reconnect with him and have him come play with the orchestra, if at all possible. He has become a staple substitute and extra player with our orchestra, and last year filled in full-time while one of our clarinetists was on leave. Our guest today is none other than Mr. Campbell McDonald. Campbell, how's it going today? Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course, man. Yeah, it's going to be fun. So I always like to start off with a little bit of an icebreaker. So my question to you is, if you had to hire a clarinet section from any part of the world at any point in time, who would you put in each position and why? So you need to hire a principal clarinetist, a second clarinetist, an E-flat, an associate principal clarinetist, and a bass clarinetist. And one thing to keep in mind is that they don't have to necessarily have held that position as one of their jobs so you can take someone who is a principal clarinetist and make them the second clarinetist and also you don't have to have any criteria so it could be just people you like hanging out with or people you admire or whatever so who would be your starting for <laughs> wow man this is just on the spot right off the bat yeah it's 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 a tough <laughs> question i mean because i mean throughout history there's a lot of great players so after throughout you say yours I'll, I'll, I'll tell you mine yeah throughout history okay um Okay, I'm going to start with the bottom voices. Sure. I think for bass clarinet, I'm going to go with whoever it was playing on the ring cycle recordings of Schulte, the Vienna Philharmonic in the 60s. Okay, yeah, I don't know who that is, but I'll have to look it up. <laughs> I don't know either. Uh, I should have looked it up pretty fire, before, huh? we, before we got into this. <laughs> well, you know, and, it's off yeah. the top of my head. <laughs> but, um, and my reasoning for that is that I always just uh, really, really, really enjoyed, have enjoyed the sensitivity and soloistic quality of that playing on that recording. Um, and I just, uh, it, there's just this ability to sort of bring the listener into a dramatic world instantaneously from that person. I don't know what they would do on other repertoire i should probably if i knew the person i'd have a little yeah. bit more well that's uh, interesting I, too because they probably played on a german bass clarinet i would imagine yeah uh they most definitely i'm sure i'm sure of that i would be surprised if it wasn't yeah i've never had the the, the chance to try one of those but i i imagine it's it's kind of like a narrower more focused sound in a way than the uh, french version uh I, I believe that it's like a smaller mouthpiece and i think I'm, I'm not even honestly like i haven't even yeah i haven't tried it either um i just i've always really i've always really just liked the sound in general of the german bass clarinet um so I'm, I'm kind of just flying by the seat of my pants here with like a lot of just kind of off 
the top of my head things that have kind of yeah but this is always really whatever first comes to your mind you know yeah um i think for second clarinet i'm going to go with the personal favorite of mine which is my old teacher from seattle laurie deluca because i learned from her so much but also just her sound and the way it in like infuses the people around her and that's based on my past experience of listening to the orchestra i've always been a big fan of the that ability to bring a deep quality to a section a real like kind of a a cylinder of you know a height uh height and depth you know as a second player to really have that ability to be flexible and i always thought that she had just this kind of she has this remarkable uh weight yeah it's it's really a special skill to be able to play second clarinet well and and i think uh a lot of times the principal clarinetists can really only go as far as their second clarinetists can take them in a certain respect, at least in terms of the, how the section sounds. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a good choice. E flat clarinet. I'm going to have to go with John Ye on that one. Yeah. He's a great player. <laughs> he's, he's good, man. He's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, I don't really know anyone that plays the E flat clarinet like that in the world. And I just, and as a, you know, obviously as a principal player as well. So just something that is well-documented. I'm kind of sticking with people that are, I guess, in generations prior to mine. And, That's okay. And, Any and generation I, I think, is fair game. Because I, because I, I, you know, one of the things about living in a small city in the Northern Indiana is that no other orchestras come to town, you know? So, I, you know, a lot of my experience and my, my, my understanding of going to concerts, at least more recently, is limited, you know. So a lot of my, my consumption of these things is through electronic media and through recordings. And certainly there's some sentimentality that plays into this, too, because of the, you know, recordings that maybe I've been... Uh, have that just come back to again and again, you know, since I was younger, it might date me just slightly, not slightly. I don't know. No, that's okay. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I mean, um, the cool thing is that we always have access to that, you know, especially now. I mean, this, the fact that we can still listen to people like, you know, John Ye on these amazing Chicago symphony recordings for the last 40 years. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much out there. I man, this is now I'm starting to second guess myself. That's a problem for you just, everything. <laughs> it's okay. You just just stick with your first gut. That's fine. That's fine. Okay. That works. All right. Um, and uh, the principal one is man. That's probably the toughest because I really just admire so many. It, it, honestly, it's all sections. I kind of you know throughout. I mean, all the positions, you know, there, there's so many, so many great players. I've not, I, and it's so funny that you asked this question because I just, I don't think I've ever even considered it. I've never even considered what would be the perfect section or what would be my perfect section. And when I think about these three players that I've just thrown out, um, they're all very, very different from each other. Well, I think you bring up a good point that there is not necessarily a perfect section. I think it's, it, there's just a lot of great players and each player has, 
their own strengths or at least what we perceive as strengths and their own weaknesses. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of just like, who do you like, you know, not necessarily like who (laughs) would match the best with each other. Yeah. So I'm, uh, I think for principle, I have to go with Combs just because I always really, well, again, I mean, it's personal, but something that has always really uh, amazed me about him is his comfort level with every type of repertoire in my experience of listening to him live and as a chamber musician, as a soloist and as an orchestra player and all, you know, just. He's also a very he, talented jazz clarinetist. Well, that too. Yes. Yeah, I, mean, so it's just like, I, mean, like, I mean, sure, sure. I mean, it's, it's just, but I mean, it's like, I can go down the, the list of, in my mind, I'm just scrolling through all of the different repertoire that I've heard him play and, and, and live and, and in recording. And, and I just, there's this flexibility there that is just like, an, an, an understanding, I guess, you know, of that just he sounds comfortable and everything to me. Yeah, he always absolutely. sounds. And I just, I'm always, you know, that stuff always really impresses me because maybe because I feel like I'm never comfortable. But. Yeah, <laughs> I gotcha. <laughs> so. um, well, those are great choices. Uh, just to quickly go through through the list that I came up with, I kind of cheated and. I mean, everyone's kind of interchangeable in my section to a certain extent. Okay. I, yeah, I didn't get but, that far in this. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess I would have to. Yeah. So, so my principal, I had to go with Marcellus just because of the history. And I mean, I think that, you know, if, if you wiped the clarinet off the face of the earth and nobody had ever heard it before, and it was your job to educate people on what the clarinet sounded like, I think the first person that you would play a recording for would be the Marcellus Mozart recording. And so I just, from a pure historical standpoint, I think that, that I would pick him. And, and actually, I did also choose Larry Combs um, as my sort of inter- interchangeable principal in second. Mm, just because, okay. I mean, mm. in terms of orchestral sure. sound, I think that, that Larry's sound is, in my opinion, I think it's still the holy grail of clarinet sounds, at least in an orchestra. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but that's mm. that's kind of I've always really admired how he sounded. Mm-hmm. I, you know, when we start, I mean, if I were to just group all of the my favorite principal clarinetists, it's like, I mean, I'm a just huge Marcellus fan and always have been, and I mean, it's like jaw dropping, you know, sonically and in terms of taste, you know, I just. I mean, I guess I go back to the sort of the sound quality, the sound that I was talking about with my teacher, Lori, you know, from Seattle, mm-hmm. that you know, she studied with him. And just that depth and the tonal palette and just how, I don't know, it's like gargantuan, yeah, you know, it's, it's and, and it's presentation. Yeah. And I mean, there's just all these others that I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of all of these people you're talking yeah. about. And it's like, I really, I, I, I find myself now being just the biggest fan of pretty much everyone, you know, uh, and it's, it's just, I'm sitting here with my face in my hands. Yeah. <laughs> Remember, you know, and I, I love Harold Wright. I just love it. I love what he does, you know, and it's a, it's a different thing. And, and I love Stan Drucker and, 
and then I uh, so anyway, I'll I'll let you finish here. Yeah, your, uh, no, there's there's Sorry, quite a legacy uh, now. <laughs> the principles just I feel like there's so many principles that I could and I and it's purely just because of their output. You know, we're aware aware of what they're doing. You know, and or have done, and it's just fantastic. I mean, Sabina. Put me. I'll I'll take Sabina Meyer. Any 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 orchestra. Yeah. Put her in there. That's fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, we'll be we'll be set. I love her. Yeah. <laughs> so to quickly finish out my list for my associate principal in E flat, I had to go with. Uh, this was a hard one for me, but I had to go with Tom Martin for a number of reasons. He is like, he's in, one of the best clarinet players I've ever seen or heard technically, like just he can just fly anything off anywhere at any time. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. And he's also an amazing mm. bass clarinet player, even though he almost never plays it in the Boston symphony, but also he's just a really funny guy and just like a really cool guy to hang around with and learn from. So I, I had to get him in there just because I'm, I'm a big fan mm. of his, um, and yeah, then bass I, clarinet, I think, Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I'm not, I, I wish I had more exposure to, so many players, you know, because he's somebody that I've always heard just such amazing things about, you know, and I just wish I had more personal exposure, you know, and I guess recordings included. I, but, but uh, honestly, just, you know, even just being able to be somewhere to hear live or have contact, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then for bass clarinet, I had to go with Lori Bloom, who's, my teacher played in the Chicago Symphony for 40 years. And I think, yeah. you know, arguably, yeah, I think, <laughs> I mean, he's my teacher, but I think arguably could be considered the greatest bass clarinetist of all time. Certainly in the conversation. I wouldn't argue. I yeah. Wouldn't argue certainly high up no, in the conversation, sure, sure, just yeah. in terms of what he did <laughs> for the instrument as an orchestral instrument was pretty significant. So I had to, had to include my boy Laurie in there. But anyways, thanks for sort of going through that exercise with me. It's kind of fun to, to just bounce that back and forth and, and talk about all yeah. these great players. If I was to just kind of make a general comment about all of it, for me, it's that, you know, we talk about these, you know, fantasies of, you know, assembling a section or whatever. I would take just the ability just to hear all of these people in person. Yeah, you know? absolutely. You know, yeah. as just I, I just haven't, you know, because that's, that's the you know what what is the the real magic because of all these all these people we talk about everyone will tell you that they sound even better even better in person you know right. what does exactly. that mean <laughs> so, yeah so, it's, so all right so I'm gonna we're gonna talk about you now if that's okay sure so, um, <laughs> so I just wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you got into music and clarinet when you were younger and sort of your, your initial exposure to it? Uh, well, I grew up in Seattle, Washington, and I was, when I was growing up, uh, I was born in 77. So get that out of the way, just to put <laughs> okay. the time frame in there. Um, I was, I have an older brother who's about three and a half years older than me. And he was, he took up the saxophone in the fifth grade and I always just wanted to do everything my brother wanted to do, you know? Mm -hmm. So my parents were also just music lovers um, and, and had a lot of records and a lot of, you know, 
before CDs, lots of records mm -hmm. and lots of tapes, lots of reel-to-reel -reel tapes, a lot of great system in the basement to listen to music. And um, my my father had a history, you know, playing guitar and singing songs. And he was in the USO and the military. And my mom had studied the piano um, as a young person. And um, so there was a, a love of music, you know, around the house. But certainly, like, pursuing music beyond just a love of music, I think – I looked to my brother because he was, he's just been pretty great at everything he decided to do. I mean, in in a lot of, in a, you know, in a lot of ways he was, a, he was a sports star and he was a, a, you know, he was a musical star um, as he got older and into high school. And so when it came time for there to be lessons in, in elementary school offered in fourth grade, we start pretty early in Seattle, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Um, but fourth grade was the was when we went to school, and the, you know the the once a week lessons began, uh, once a week band sessions, and I wanted to play the trumpet because all of my friends played the trumpet. Well, we're going to play the trumpet, and I I went down, and it was kind of like this like cheesy music man moment where yeah. you know the the guy sitting, the band director's sitting there, and he's got these huge glasses, and they're very thick, and he's tilting his head back and he's saying well why don't you open your mouth there and he has me lean my head back and he's looking at my teeth and saying oh this is no this is a clarinet mouth you know this kind of stuff just ridiculous kind of but <laughs> I guess he was right because I said I said I think he just needed more clarinet players because he he all he said he said well I've got a lot of trumpet players but let me look at that mouth and then you know it was just yeah you know and I just thought I thought okay well all right if that's what you want I'll play clarinet yeah that's and we're all naive whatever, at that you know? that age so we're like oh yeah I must have a clarinet mouth who knows right I didn't care honestly <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to be in the band I just wanted to play music you know and yeah. I I thought it'd be fun and I and I came home and told my mom that they wanted me to they wanted me to play the clarinet and i said and so i give uh, a lot of credit to my mom because just immediately she just asked me if i wanted lessons and yeah. if i would want lessons outside of school and i said sure because my brother had was taking private lessons and already in saxophone and um i she my mom was a is a high school teacher was a high school teacher She's still alive. She her career was as mm -hmm. a high school teacher sure. um, at uh, Roosevelt High School, which was a very large one of the larger schools in Seattle. And she taught there for I think thirty eight years or thirty five years, oh, well, something yeah. like that. Uh, but also a, a very well known music department, both in terms of orchestra and jazz music, and. She just went to school and went to the orchestra director and who she was friends with and said, well, my son's going to play the clarinet. And do you have any student, any teachers that you might recommend? And it was really just completely by luck because it was that fall, whatever it was, fall of 80 something, <laughs> 86, I think, that my teacher, uh, Laura DeLuca, had recently moved to Seattle to be in the symphony there. And so the orchestra director told her, well, you know, there's these 
uh, there are these, these other well-known teachers in the area, but there's this new woman in town who had called me and was looking for students and you might want to give, give her a try. She's younger and maybe that'll be good for a young student. And it was just completely by luck. I mean, and my mother's research, but you know, uh, just that my first lesson was with my teacher in the Seattle symphony before I even had a lesson at school. That's crazy. You know? So you went and, like so you immediately had like serious guidance before you even like opened the case. Yeah, I mean That's it was yeah. it's it's kind of, you know, and I and I I think back to that. I mean, I have a really sharp memory for the, of these these lessons and and that I had with her and her showing me the embouchure and show and and you know, sticking her face essentially right next to my little face yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with the clarinet in her mouth, yeah. you know, and, and showing me you know, what's going on with, her, with, you know, the sound that she's creating. And then also listening to that sound just from the very beginning. And I, I don't really know how to describe that other than just luck. I mean, that, 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 that fell to me, you know, it's. Yeah. Well, it's luck, but it's also, you know, your parents, recognize the value of it and put you oh, in, a, in a situation that you could you know certainly exceed or you know yeah your peers oh yeah so and i i definitely you know i i didn't mean it. yeah it's my mom definitely did her homework and yeah. and i was very fortunate though i mean it could have been anyone else you know there could have been some other young person that was new in town i guess it's right. the way i think about it i mean you know i was just lucky to be in the right place in the right time and she was my teacher until i went to college yeah so that's awesome i, I was very lucky you know yeah. so, so so uh going you sort of already touched on this but i just want to know so who were your main teachers obviously Lori, you mentioned so throughout your life and and what was your biggest takeaway from studying which with each of these teachers so the degree you got or who you studied with privately or whatever well I'll just go chronologically. I mean, and Lori was just like the foundation that she gave me is just, I, I still think about these things. I mean, 30 over 30 years later, you know, yes. uh, these, these things that she taught me, but beyond the instrument, the belief that there's something else that we can't see and we can't hear, you know, that there's this other world that we need to constantly be, you know, reaching for. And that, you know, it comes in so many forms, but I mean, she and I are very different people, but just, I, again, to go back to some of my memories as like learning, you know, working out of the Rubank book or something like that, being 10 years old and having some three line melody to play and have her really ask me you know what does this really mean yeah like <laughs> dem like, demand music out of it immediately get, get, yeah. get deep get deeper you yeah, know yeah. And, <laughs> and who knows what was on my mind yeah. at 10 years old but yeah right i i remember sitting there and just thinking man this this is hard you know i really do have to ask more of myself and i still do that i sit in my practice room and i say man, you just got to give more of yourself to this. And it comes from her. I really, you know, yeah. so towards the end of my time in high school, I was exposed a little bit to a, a person who was the principal clarinet of Seattle symphony in the early part of the 20th century. 
and his name was Ronald Phillips. And he was a Bernard student. And he played in the Seattle Symphony until it was 80 or 81, I believe. And he was a graduate of my high school. And so he came and did wind sectionals for free for our high school orchestra. Oh, that's so cool. It was, yeah. So, and, and I actually knew, you know, through the Youth Symphony, the Seattle Youth Symphony program, I knew some other people that studied with him. And he was somebody that was kind of like my first contact with a considerably older generation, you know. But at my age, I'm lucky enough to have been able to kind of be on the tail end of a lot of these people's careers. Yeah. And he was somebody that just, I had a few lessons with him, you know, in preparing for college and auditions and various things. And he was a very giving person. And, uh, he, you know, he was just kind of his musical knowledge. He was, he was very nuts and bolts in terms of like rhythm and singing qualities and, he was a a really nice guy, you know, and it was a completely different kind of experience, but he, he kind of, kind of took me down into a little bit of a, a rabbit hole, I guess, or a, I don't know if the rabbit hole is the right word, but an interest in sort of historical recordings and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, I, I, then I went to Oberlin right after high school and I studied with Lawrence McDonald there and he mm-hmm. was a, Marcellus student, in addition to, I think, Brody as well. He went to Northwestern but in the 60s. But he studied with Marcellus when Marcellus was in the Cleveland Orchestra. And they would uh, drive over, you know, in carfuls from Chicago to take lessons. And that's the, you know, the stories that many people have yeah, heard. the old guard about. stories, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he always, he always had a lot of really great stories about that experience. Um, one of my favorite ones was that, you know, he said that the Canadian car always showed up right after his and right after his lesson. And the cars were being unbolted to reveal various cigars that were used in forms of payment and yeah. things like that. So I thought that was a kind of a funny, <laughs> really cool. yeah. funny anecdote. Yeah. Um, so and studying with him was really quite a bit different than anyone I'd ever worked with. Of course, you know, limited experience at that point. But he really got me to look at the instrument in a much healthier fashion, really addressed respiration a lot. And as a musician, just really pushed you to avoid uh, cliche thought processes. You know, I guess that would be the best way I could put it. I, I feel like he was in a different way, still, you know, moving to that other world, you know, attempting to reach that next plane or however many planes or planets away you can get, you know, in terms of creativity and expression. And one of the words that he uses as a teacher a lot is inflection and articulation. And articulation, not in the sense of tongue on the reed, but articulating your ideas in terms of gesture. So from the the respiration thing that I was talking about, before I studied with him, I couldn't really practice more than two or three hours, you know, max, without kind of just sort of maxing out physically, you know, it it just, you know, I'd get really tired, and it was a lot of biting involved and a lot of fatigue. And dealing with air, you know, as like a fuel source, kind of nonstop for like four years, he'd bring you into, I think, 
a more efficient way of playing the instrument. And, you know, it was after I started studying with him that I really could practice as long as I wanted. And on like a physical level, I feel like that's like a gift that I, I don't really know, you know, how you pay that back <laughs> because I just don't get tired. Um, and I'm, I'm really lucky. I, my brain gets tired, but you know, my face doesn't get tired and I, I'm really happy about yeah, that's, having that's that, nice you know, taking have. that away from him. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's something where it's something to the, where now, I mean, I address fatigue as just immediately as that I'm doing something that I shouldn't be doing and, and I'm able to manage it. It might also make me less efficient in my process, but knowing that I just don't, <laughs> I just could play all day, but yeah. But knowing I, that you have the yeah. capacity makes it so you don't have to account for another variable when you're planning, you're practicing, you know? Yeah. I, you know, I still, of course, love being fresh and I think there's just something natural to, you know, I'm not a medical professional, but whatever's going on in the mouth and the lips and everything that's doing something, I still appreciate being fresh at times, but it's usually not like something where, wow, I wish I hadn't practiced all day, right. you know, for this rehearsal. It's not like on that level um, at all for me. So I'm really happy that I have that just as a skill or if it, I don't know if it's a skill, I don't know. Just again, I, I, I'm, I come back to luck a lot cause I just feel like I'm pretty lucky. Yeah. So hey, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. So. <laughs> yeah, so, I don't know. Um, and while I was at Overland, I studied with David Weber a little bit during our winter term sessions, which were in between semesters in January. Uh, we would, I had the opportunity to uh, connect with him. And that was through a person from Seattle also uh, named William Blaney, who was a student of David Weber's. And he was somebody who taught sectionals for the, the Seattle Youth Symphony program. And um, I had a, a friend who studied with him and I was exposed to, he was, he was also somebody that was very instrumental in kind of bringing to my attention, like that lineage, essentially pre-World War II lineage. And these, David Weber, as you know, was a student of Bonad's as well. And he was still teaching actively during the late 90s. And I was really lucky to have that opportunity. Um, and Mr. B Mr. Blaney, uh, he introduced me to Dave Weber. I wrote him a letter. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Shocker, you know. Yeah, back in the days. <laughs> wrote him a no letter. And he, uh, yeah, and he he wrote he wrote me back, and then I called him, and then we talked on the phone, and then I went to New York, and I stayed with a friend of my mom's, a teacher that she knew who lived there, and I studied with David Weber. So those and and. The exposure to somebody like David Weber, you know, that really brought another layer to sound and focus of sound and legato and singing quality, you know, to the sound. That was just something that was just always present in what he had to say. You know, he used, and you can speak to any of his students, it, it, it's many of the same stories, but I think he's probably said this to every single person that, you know, I want you to think about sitting on the stage at Carnegie Hall and think about the person sitting in the last row of Carnegie Hall and what that sound needs to be for that person. And I think that that's a pretty detailed description of what it means to project 
and 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 that was something that he was just all about yeah i had i had an interesting conversation with a friend of mine and, and he said that that a colleague of his said that when he's playing in the orchestra he tries to imagine what he sounds like sitting from the balcony so the way he's produced i think a lot of times we sort of sit on stage and say oh i'm gonna play like this and it's gonna project it's like no actually metaphysically leave your body and sit in the balcony and try to play that way you know what i mean it's like a kind of a way of yeah cultivating your sound that that you can kind of do it in a way where you're actually imagining that you're out there and what you need to do to get there rather than being in your chair on stage and like yeah. going through all these hypotheticals. Cause no one really, I mean, that's the, that's the weird secret about what we do is like, nobody actually knows what they sound like. Cause if you sound, if, if you have a recording of yourself, <laughs> it totally depends on your acoustic, your recording quality. Um, you obviously yeah. don't know what you sound like you know, as you're playing because you have all these other things going on. So it's a, it's a really kind of a strange subjective world that we live in. And so we have to do our best to kind of imagine what, what we're doing and what's going out to the audience. I mean, it's something I struggle with every time I've seen Absolutely. It's hard. Yeah. It's, so it's it's like, but I think I, for me, there's just like a certain tonal map that I've constructed for myself that, seems to work yeah you know and i and i owe it to a lot of these concepts these tonal concepts i'm talking about that i've learned from these really wonderful people i've been in touch with yeah so and um so that was something that was a really interesting experience you know being in new york and staying with him and then and kind of having this window into the past you know that was vivid you know vivid portrait essentially that he would portray that he would paint you know as a teacher and after my time at Oberlin I was pretty burned out a little, a little towards the end of my time at Oberlin I just lost a little steam and I decided not to go to school right away and I went and I moved to Los Angeles for a year and um, I got to take a couple lessons with Yehuda and I still yep. think about those lessons for those who don't know, Yehuda Galad is the teacher at yeah. USC and uh, Colburn. Yeah, and uh, so those were, I had a really great friend um, who was studying with him at the time, and I got some exposure to him, and uh, I still use many of the things he taught me, even those three, I think it was three lessons I had with him, and I had uh, a couple lessons with Mitchell Lurie also oh, while cool. I was there, yeah, really um, cool. and that was really great. Man, he was, it was like heavy. His presence was heavy, I will say. It was just like, I knocked on the front door and he answered. And it was just like, you know, he was just so warm. And I walked into his living room and, you know, other than the piano, it didn't look like a musician's house at all. Yeah, sure. It was this beautiful, you know, beautiful West LA home and, he searched around into a closet, went into a closet and rummaged around and found a music stand for me. And yeah, it was funny. So it was uh, it was a nice little short bit of time that I spent about ten months in LA studying, but also just working, kind of taking a break from school. And I, while I was there, I decided to go to to Paul and stay with Combs. Um, it just seemed like a opportunity that I couldn't give up. I was somebody I always, I had never studied with somebody who had been, you know, 
principal clarinet in one of the best orchestras in the world, you know, for, you know, who was doing it at the time, you know, and yeah, it's, it was, a, it's a different perspective that they give you. Not yeah. that, you know, Yehuda Gawad's, you know, probably the best clarinet teacher on the planet. Now you kind of get a different perspective from what he teaches you to what someone like Larry Combs teaches you when Larry's like playing the job and then going straight from rehearsal to your lessons where he can kind of apply what he just learned in rehearsal to your lesson. It's just a, an interesting dynamic. Yeah. It really worked for me, you know, studying with him. I would say I was pretty fragmented in terms of like my ability. I, I felt there were certain things that I was just really, really, really strong at. And then certain fundamental things that were just really behind. And our relationship, it, it worked. It worked really well for me. Um, I just, he, for whatever reason, he was able to motivate me, which is something that pretty much all of my teachers have had problems with. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I remember him saying something along the lines of, well, you know, if you don't want to practice, then you're already sunk, you know? And really it was during my time at DePaul that I really started practicing a lot. I mean, it was before then, you know, I had fleeting moments, so, you know, stretches here and there. But what I mean by that is more than just two hours a day, you know, or three hours a day, I mean, really putting in long, long, long hours and finding every opportunity to do that. I uh, was lucky enough also to have a really cool roommate for part of my time there who was a clarinetist named Dan Juan. And he um, he was and is a, just a very dedicated uh, musician. And man, he liked to practice. And I just, I kind of rubbed off on me in a really good way. You know, he, he was like, it was just like, don't, you know, don't think too much about it. Just get in there and do it. Yeah, you know, it's really <laughs> interesting I, that yeah. that that you that you say that that's when you really started to practice because I feel like everyone who's in positions like we are has some sort of point like that where they just go like nose to grindstone. I remember like my senior year of college, I was like waking up at like six thirty in the morning. I was at the practice rooms at seven thirty, you know, and I did like five or six hours a day, basically morning to night, I fit it in everywhere I, I could. Um, and I feel like everybody had a year or two like that where it just, they just needed to do it, you know? Yeah. It's, um, it's the only answer for me these days. I mean, time and time again, it's just, I like practicing a lot. And I, and I think that it was that period of time that kind of, just made me, you know, kind of give myself over to it just in a way that was like, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy getting better and I enjoy improving. I enjoy learning things. And for me, the way I work, it, there's just no substitute for the intimacy. And that means many hours and that means time to reflect. And it's just kind of learned that at that point, um, or at least got my first taste of it. And um, yeah, just the working on the orchestral repertoire and, preparing for auditions with Combs and it really brought, just brought me into focus yeah. in, in a really positive way. Yeah. Well, cool. It sounds like you had uh, yeah. quite a lot of experience. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking uh, back to all your teachers that you're, you're telling me about and how they studied with Bonat. And, and it's funny cause I'm uh, and this is not to make light of the generation gap cause you're not that much older than I am, but all these people you're men mentioning are people that I first knew about based on like, their ligatures or their brand of reeds, you know, or their barrels. So it's kind of funny that you had exposure to all of them. And, and I'm like, I know them because of, 
you know, David Weber's barrel or whatever the, whatever the case yeah. may be. So it's, it's pretty cool I, but, I, to, to hear yeah. about this. I do feel, consider myself to be really fortunate to like have had this sort of, you know, ability to be in. And that's what I mean by that, that personal contact, you know, cause that's just what means, means the most. Yeah. You know? Well, cool, man. So one thing I wanted to talk to you about is that you are heavily involved with the new music scene, mainly in New York City, but I know that you do stuff all around the world. So can you talk about like how you got into that and how often you do it? And to be honest, like how do you fit it in all of into your schedule with your duties with Fort Wayne and, and all the other things that you do? Yeah, I well, first of all, I was I got into it kind of like, like I didn't I didn't have this like crazy passion for new music when I was in college, but it was my time at Oberlin that introduced me to it, to, to playing new music and, and to about half a dozen or more people that I still play music with uh, in the, uh, the international contemporary ensemble. And, you know, my role has been, I want to give all, all respect to the people who run and are the creative directors of that group because they're the ones that when you really say heavily involved in the new music scene, I, I really, my, my role is really as a performer and not, not so much as a, as a creative director. Yeah. Or Cause as a lot a, of these guys, or as like, a curator, they play group and they do the grant writing and they're administrative. Yes. Right. Like, and I, and I'm job. Yes. And, and, and I just want to, you know, I don't want to make light of like my, my, my duties as a performer, but I want to just give like all credit to the people who are writing those grants, the people who are, who are working out commissions, working out uh, curating programs and curating uh, projects with different educational institutions. I, I really am not doing, um, I'm not on that, on the front line in that regard. Um, and I, I take part in them and I'm, and I'm absolutely like, uh, enthusiastic about doing it but it's been a big part of my career because it's something that over time first of all the profile of the or of the organization the international contemporary ensemble has just really just kind of blossomed um mm -hmm. over the last couple decades but those people that i made contact with you know and, and performed with as a 19 and 20 year old these people are just amazing amazing artists and soloists and are a part of a performance environment that is really outside of it, it's it's outside of what most orchestra musicians do you know on a regular basis not all because there are many there we, there are some plenty of people who do both um but it's really uh i'm really fortunate to to be able to you know go to new york half a dozen, 10 times a year and perform chamber music or and travel to Europe and uh, other places around the United States. And it's something that brings a lot. It, it, it gives me a, a lot of pleasure and, and satisfaction because the level of those musicians is, is really high. They're, um, I mean, they're unbelievable. Like you can't even imagine what they do. <laughs> it's just crazy. I can't imagine what they it's, do. And, and you I'm play with them right all the time. Them. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, 
I just don't. Um, and you know, I, and I, I just feel like so fortunate to do it. And again, to this idea of of what else is out there because the music is so different, and in programs from pro, from program to program, the demands are so different, and that it's it's like when I go there after playing in the orchestra, say for two or three months, if I go and I have to do something that maybe I'm playing some piece that doesn't even have notation <laughs> and there's improvisatory elements and there's tons of multiphonics and it takes a lot of effort and energy to, to get into, first of all, just being able to do it first of all, but also just past that, you know, again, getting beyond the instrument, which is what we're all trying to do, you know, to bring a world, a sound world to the audience uh, to to honor or to you know really get into the composer's idea and their vision yeah i feel like you have to kind of change your mindset almost because i mean when you're playing beethoven it's just like you're playing beethoven and, and, and you're trying to just curate these and craft these perfect phrases and uh you know really serve the composer but a lot of the new music you're trying to do the same thing but it's like a different like you kind of have to turn your mind 90 degrees almost you know what yeah. i mean and it's it just it depends on the, the composition you know right. it's just that the, the the first thing is that a lot of the things that you just are asked to do on a fundamental level are so outside of what you have to do in an orchestra that's the, the you know the first step is just saying you know this is not orchestra playing this is not it's not that you know it's not it's not classical music uh it's a it's a big challenge and yeah, there is this. It, 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 it's the the biggest the the biggest challenge is that is that changing of. Uh, but but on the but on the other hand, it's like it's like I found it necessary. Like and I can't at this point I can't imagine myself not having that. Um, because it's funny because you, I get the impression sometimes that I that when I play with my colleagues in New York, I I sometimes get the impression that I'm like the conservative one. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and then I come back, you know, and I'm like the wild, like, what are you doing, man? You're crazy. And, and this, the, you know, or just like your thought process is not in, I don't really know what, if that's true or not, it's just perception, but you know, I, I, I just can't imagine my performing world without it because I really love playing the orchestra. And I really love playing uh, new music. I mean, I really just like love the open endedness, the, the you know open endedness of it. I'm talking speaking in very general terms, you know, but it's just. Well, I feel like for you, you need both to sort of satisfy your uh, artistic endeavors. Like, I feel like you wouldn't be happy if it was just the orchestra. You wouldn't be happy if it was just the new music. Like, yeah, you need kind of both to balance it out and get, and give your keep your creativity you know on its toes yeah it and it, it it's definitely just taken on that the variety in and of itself is like the, that that plays a role in my life you know a positive role and and i i couldn't imagine not having it because i don't get bored necessarily but I paint myself into corners. It's nice to do something different and, and, and not just different. <laughs> yeah. Like, cause you know, in the orchestra we have yeah. pops weeks and we have classical weeks and like, that's different, but just like mm. getting into this space where 
you're playing in unique halls or i mean i remember one time you said you were playing something on a, a barge on the hudson river is that am i remembering this oh, correctly oh uh, no well <laughs> well there was a project that i did not take part in that was oh, okay. that was uh i would say if you were to talk about one of the more crazy environments was probably playing De Materie by Andreasen, where we played uh, with a flock of sheep, you know, oh, running right. around on the floor <laughs> of the Park Avenue Armory. I, I mean, that was probably one of the more, yeah, I don't want to say it was the most far out, which is kind of odd to say. Yeah. But- it was pretty neat. That's pretty <laughs> but, I mean, that just goes to show you, like, like that's different than playing a Pops <laughs> yeah. concert, you know, like having a flock of sheep running around. So, yeah. No, that would never happen at, like, yeah, that wouldn't happen at, at most orchestra concerts, I guess. I, I don't so, think it would ever happen at yeah, orchestra concerts. I mean, it could not, be wrong, but not. who knows? <laughs> um, well, that's really cool, man. I'm glad that, that that's, yeah. that's able, yeah. that you have that avenue, because I know sometimes, like, I crave stuff like that, and I'm sort of unable to do it just because our schedule is so busy and it doesn't make sense mm. for me to do it but yeah. it is it is nice that you have that avenue and the flexibility to be able to do stuff like that so um to switch switch gears a little bit for those who don't know you you're an avid foosball player and oh, uh, man. yeah so <laughs> so for those who don't know foosball is tabletop soccer essentially and you know Campbell always talking about his foosball tournaments and stuff. So I, I'm just curious, like, how did you find this hobby and why is it important for you? Like, why is it important to have this hobby? Well, it started out as something to do at a bar by my house. And I was, a when I was a child, we had a foosball table in my basement and I would mess around with it with my friends and my brother. But it wasn't like serious at all. Like it was just screwing around and spinning the rods and stuff, but I was at least familiar with this, what it was and some of the physics, I guess, if you want to go that far. And I started just playing and it is in America. It is a bar sport. Essentially. It's mostly known as something that's played in bars. And I started playing at the bar down the street from my house about, I don't know, eight or nine years ago. And I just got really lost in it. And once you learn the basic skills, it's first of all, it's very difficult to play it the right way or like within like the tournament rule set and all those kind of things. There's a lot of control and things like that that are very difficult to learn. But once you kind of start going down the path, it's an, it's an addictive sport. And everybody who plays it, we just, you know, everyone refers it to it as the bug, you know, you have the bug, you know, and, and every, you know, every sport or game has that, you know, aspect to it usually. And, I've always been quick in terms of my ability to respond, like good reflexes, things like that. But it, but never been a fast person like with sports, like with, you know, like I couldn't run fast, but I could hit well in baseball. You know, I had a crappy arm, but I could dig grounders out. I don't know. You know, like I've never been a fast, strong person. What is it? It's like the five qualities of baseball. It's like running, throwing, hitting. It, you know, so you, you you had like one or two of those qualities. I had like I had like one point five. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. right. And I really wanted to be there. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, but but you know, uh, this was something where you know the like it's a fast moving game. It's just and it's something that I've um, just pursued and become 
better at and practiced at. And I've actually had some success winning some things. And I'm still like in the world of like the foosball world, I'm like really low. Like the competitive foosball world, I'm in the bottom like 10%. I mean, I'm not, you know, high at all. Because you're talking about people that have played the sport since they were kids. And I guess that there's a lot of parallels with, you know, it's a practice sport. I mean, something that requires a lot of motor skills. People who are good at it, they spend hours and hours practicing alone. They practice basic skills. It's very similar in that respect. There's, you know, there's routines, there's just basic skill sets. There's the ability to move outside of the norm, express yourself a little bit with creativity in terms of the way you play. And it morphed from something that just kind of drew me in to something that I could do at night to something that I could do when I traveled. And, and actually it was while I traveled that I started getting better and actually learning a lot. Like my trips to New York, there's professional foosball players there that play every week that are really high level. And I started learning like quote unquote tournament style play. And then a couple of years later, I started going to actual pro tournaments and it was something that uh initially it was like my ability to perform under pressure that always kind of covered me carried me a little bit and gave me a little bit of success um not being rattled and being able to kind of uh focus and but then after a few years it started flowing back into the music like i started learning about the pressure i was experiencing and 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 i started recognizing some of these things in my own performing and my own ability to, to focus as a performer. And they really just, I'm really happy with the way that they kind of have married themselves and like on a mental, on a mental side, you know, um, mental health side. And it's just been good for my brain just to have this completely other thing. And like I said, not to, to, to be all of a sudden somebody that is fast moving and have speed and power granted on a very limited, small, uh, controlled space it's still something that like I never had as an athlete and then I have it now <laughs> and it's like and it's just it's it's been rewarding you know and I play everywhere I go I mean I play when I go to Indianapolis I play with guys down there I play when I go to Detroit and you know visit friends up there I'll go to New York I play there I play in Chicago I play in Europe I played everywhere yeah. I go and it's great. <laughs> That's so it. awesome, man. I mean, yeah. it's, I can't stress enough, like the importance yeah. of having outlets other than music. Cause I think that we are all sort of this personality where we went to college and then we got to get a job and, and then it's really difficult, you know, and then when we get a job, we got to get a better job. So it's really difficult to kind of get out of that mindset. But once you like do, it's nice to know, that there are other things out there that, that make you a well-rounded person. So for you, it's foosball, you know, and that's, that's your hobby. And, and, and it, it sort of, it actually helps your performing because it gives you something other than your performing to think about and to, to put your energy towards. Yeah, it's, it's definitely helped me. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's like, it's, it's helped my personal life too. I mean, it's weird. It's like helped a lot of things. And I mean, it's the only thing I've done as a hobby. I've, I've always had a lot of like, you know, little, dalliances and things like that that i was kind of you know growing up and you know cycling and skiing and i like being outside and and being active but you know this is the thing i've stuck with the longest of anything and i just can't even imagine now like my life not having it you know and it's like and it's um you know like i've got my practice room where i'm sitting right now and 
just on the other side of the door, I've got myself a tournament foosball table ready to go. I can go over there and practice for take a break, practice half an hour, practice two hours, practice yeah, three hours, come back, practice here for a few hours. That's the way. Great. And from what I've heard, <laughs> your girlfriend's an absolute killer on the foosball table. So you got someone to uh, practice against. Yeah, she's a beast, man. Beast. Unbelievable. She's just like, every time I go anywhere with her, People are like, yeah, Campbell, you're pretty good. Yeah, yeah. But she's really good. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a hugest fan. Yeah. I'm her biggest fan. That's cool. That's really awesome, man. Well, I'm glad Great that... job, Allison. Allison, you're crushing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so back to sort of pivoting back to clarinet, I know we touched a little bit on on, on equipment and stuff, and not too mm-hmm. much, but I know you're sort of known for having a uh, sort of array of vintage mouthpieces and like I remember we were at a recording session I once. Am? Yeah, yeah. I mean you, we were at a recording session once and you pulled out this like uh this like it wasn't a shoebox, it was like this small cardboard box of like six or seven Caspers and Shedvilles that you just like set on the the chair and people were like taking them and trying them and all this stuff. So I just I just wanted to know like what uh, first of all are you playing on like is that your main mouthpiece and like what what draws you to them? Like what what about them? do you like that you can't get from other mouthpieces? Uh, okay. First of all, I have a lot of mouthpieces, but I don't play on a lot of mouthpieces. I just want to like put that out there, but I, I'm not like rotating like every week or two weeks or whatever. I mean, like I have no, I a lot you. of mouthpieces, but, but um, I, it's, it's something that I've had contact with for a long time. Like, and I, I think this goes back to sort of that, you know, that interest in in old clarinet players, you know, that kind of stuff, stuff from back in the day. You know, I've always just liked the sounds that I hear. My teacher at Oberlin played on Casper mouthpieces, and I think I got my first one when I was there. Um, I played on it for a couple of years. I liked it, but, you know, it had some intonation problems that just really weren't going to work in the long term. And and I, the mouthpiece that I play the most on, my whole professional career is probably a Hawkins R model. And if that, that's just as far as like the most stuff I've done, but for the last probably four years, I've played on a Casper mouthpiece. And the thing is that whenever I've played other Hawkins mouthpieces or whatever it may be, people always thought I was playing on old mouthpieces anyway. And I don't really, I just think it comes back to concepts I, you know, there's certain qualities that they have that I think are just sort of uh, a part of their construction. Um, I don't think that that necessarily means that you can't get those qualities with other mouthpieces because I've messed with everything, you know, like most of us have, you know, and I I don't really think I sound that much different when I change, you know, from, from thing to thing. But, um, I mean, there's always little subtle differences, but. like it goes back to what we were saying earlier like for the person sitting in the balcony like i guess if you played it back to back they might notice a difference but a lot of it goes back to kind of feel and what does it allow you to like the best mouthpieces i've ever had are the mouthpieces or the best setups period that i ever had are the ones that make me feel like i'm not holding a clarinet in my hand and and i just use it as a vehicle to make music so if I can somehow find yeah. that, I can compromise right. on other things because then you just your your mind isn't focused on the technical constraints of whatever you're holding. And I I would like to say like you know I definitely am in the same 
same boat. Like I, I don't want to think about it. There are certain things that like, I have basically two Caspers that I just think are really, really good. I've owned 20, 30, I don't know. Probably See, I more, told you, you, you know? had a lot of them. <laughs> I, I have owned. I, yes. met, I never have had, I never had all those ones at one time, but yeah, I, come on down you know, to the Fort Wayne Philharmonic and Campbell will sell you a mouthpiece out of his locker. Oh, that's not how I do it. That's not how I do it. <laughs> but, um, I think that's how I do it at the recording studio. Yeah, the recording that's session what I that you were talking about. <laughs> that's what I thought. But, but uh, generally speaking, I just I'm trying to find something for me, you know. And like, if it's if it's you know, I've got my couple. I, you know, when I look at equipment, it's just yes or no at this point for me. Can I or can't I? And that's it. And it's like I try to just keep it keep it simple. Because there are, with a lot of vintage mouthpieces, there are just a lot of idiosyncrasies that are just not worth dealing with, and for me, at least. I, and, like, I, I got to work, you know? I got to go to rehearsal, and I got to practice. I can't be screwing around, you know, all the time with. So I guess to answer your question uh, more directly, your original question, I do like Casper mouthpieces because I do like and they're the good ones, which are hard to find. I like their basic qualities. But, you know, I feel like you need to be able to just move on at any moment, you know. I mean, it's like it's some point they're all going to be gone or the one that I like is going to be gone or the ones that I like are going to change or something's going to happen. And because they wear out, I mean, stuff happens. I mean, it's like you got to be ready to just move on to the next thing. I mean, for now, it's what I like. And and honestly, I, I it definitely has a lot to do with the hall I play in because in Fort Wayne, we play in a really big it's big. It's, I think it seats like 2,400. Yeah, it's big. Um, and it's a big overhang. It's a vaudeville era theater. And to project in that hall, like really covered setups just don't work. Yeah, so you need something a little more lively and brilliant. Yeah. And, you know, I, 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 I struggle with that. Like when I go to other halls or other places, sometimes I'm like, oop, <laughs> I'm, I'm warming up and I'm like, I'm really like, whoa. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so like, so like our hall is like a little under 1,700 seats, I think. So it's significantly mm -hmm. smaller, and it really likes high overtones. So like mm -hmm. what I have to do here is much more much different than what you would have to do in Fort Wayne. Yeah, and I would say that when I play there, I, I keep that in mind as much as I can. Yeah. And it's like sometimes, you know, I feel like still I'm, when, I'm, when I'm there, I feel a little bright, brighter than I want to be, but it's a process and actually like I would say like where I'm at right now is different than I was a year ago and yeah. I don't really, you know, it always changes. So, yeah. you know, yeah, things are changing and I've changed the reads up a little bit. And yeah. so I don't play, <laughs> you know, I, it's conceptual. I really think it like really comes back to like, you know, is your concept practical? Do you have practical concepts? Cause sometimes I've had impractical concepts. I think it's important to, to try to be as unemotional about, you know, you know, looking at what you're doing and, and really ask yourself, does this work? Is this a good idea? Is this going to be today's solution or is this a long-term solution? You know, sometimes you have to go with today's solution, but a lot of the times today's solution is tomorrow's failure. Yeah. <laughs> no, totally. yes. I gotcha. Uh, maybe failure is a little bit, that's too dramatic, but still, it's a detriment perhaps in the future. And so it, that's what I've been spending a lot of time doing in my practicing is thinking about 
are these concepts practical? You know? Yep. Cause I can play on anything. <laughs> so no, I, yeah. I feel that, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> so, well, know. cool, man. Um, so the one last thing I'm going to ask you about, it's just kind of a fun thing. So for those who don't know, there's this clarinetist named Nicholas Balderu, B-A-L-D-E-Y-R-O-U. And he's a clarinetist in the French radio orchestra. And he's kind of become somewhat of an internet celebrity, at least amongst clarinet players, because he posts all these videos with him playing all the different parts and these cool arrangements and lots of fast articulation. So I just wanted to know, like, what is your favorite video of his? Man, this is like almost as hard as the clarinet section question. I, man, I feel like I've watched so many and it's always, it, it rotates, you know, I guess I'll go with the Mendelssohn Scherzo. I'll take the easy way yeah, out. Yeah, that one is pretty think, amazing. I just really like that it's better than an orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. So, yeah. I really love it. I think it sounds great. That stuff is like the 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 kind of, you know, and what he's doing is gimmicky, but he does it so well that I just am like, man, this is amazing. You know, it's he gimmicky, but so he doesn't good. take himself seriously. You know, right, like they're right. fun. No, I love that. They're funny. He, he doesn't. He has a sense of humor. Yeah. He sounds fantastic. It's like there's no. Yeah, it's cool. Like it's. I think that what he's doing is super cool, and I really just. I, if I could make one sound that sounded as good as any of the sounds that he's doing, like I would be a, a very happy person, you know? So I really enjoy him, I, but I'll go with that. I'll go with the Mendelssohn Scherzo because I don't like watching super long internet videos either. So there you go. I'm a little shorter. Yeah. I think my, my two favorites are the jingle bells boogie and uh -huh. the Horace staccato. It's just like unbelievable uh, yeah, playing. Yeah. 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 And uh, and it's yeah. it's like good. I I highly recommend if 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 our listeners haven't seen it like I really recommend just going to his YouTube channel Nicholas Balderu and just checking him out it's it's pretty cool even for people that don't like clarinet it's just kind of fun to watch him so before we leave do you have any last words shoutouts pieces of advice words of wisdom yeah sure I guess to uh, to aspiring musicians I would say don't shy away from large leaps forward that's good advice you know yeah vision envision yourself taking large leaps and don't second guess yourself because you know what's the worst that could happen you'll be in the same place exactly and you won't be because you won't be in the same place you'll have tried something great and uh, i would say that that's my that's my parting advice to any aspiring musician that uh, you don't need to take small steps all the time Oh, that's you great, man. Huge steps. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to get to know you. But I mean, there were things about you that I learned today that I uh, I didn't know before. So thanks for joining us. And for our new listeners out there, please make sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram at the Candid Clarinetist, and follow us on Twitter at Candid underscore Clarinet. Once again, I am Sam Rothstein, and thanks for tuning in to the Candid Clarinetist.